For what do I have If I don't have you, Jesus What in this life Could mean anymore You are my rock You are my glory You are the lifter of my head Hi, and welcome to The Rock's Podcast. Jesus often used parables, a story within a story, to illustrate spiritual truths so that those who were sincerely open to a relationship with God could understand and respond with faith. Let's join Pastor Carlin now as he leads us through a series on the parables of Jesus. We'd like to welcome you back to your seats so we can begin. And a hush fell over the crowd. Uh, Well, again, I want to welcome you out. We've been doing a series and just going over uh, some parables, parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. So tonight our parable and text is gonna be found in Matthew 13, verses 31 through 35. And as you make your way there in your Bibles, I'm gonna open us up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you decided to reveal knowledge to us. God, without your revelation, without your word, All that we could know is that there is a God and somehow we're disconnected from him. Lord, instead of being overwhelmed by the guilt of our sin and being left in that state, uh, we have revelation of what kind of God you are. You've made it known in your word that all who come to you can receive forgiveness of sins by what you have accomplished through your death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. God, we just look to this parable tonight and we wanna learn from your word because we're here to follow you. So speak to us, illuminate your word, make it clear to us tonight, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So for a bit of context, what we have been discussing is what has led up to this point in Matthew. So Matthew 13, we see that uh, a big rejection has taken place. So we see that the people have rejected the Messiah. We see that the religious leaders had rejected their Messiah. We see in Matthew 12, this building up and building up to where the Pharisees see Jesus do a messianic miracle meant to prove that he is the Messiah. And they immediately attribute it to the work of Satan. They say it's, It's by the prince of demons that he casts out demons. And we hear Jesus' sharp rebuke and warning to them and warns them not to blaspheme the Holy Spirit who's confirming his ministry. Now, it says that same day as we turn into Matthew 13, so the very same day that that rejection uh, really just peaked, now it says Jesus is going to address this crowd and he's, He's at the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee has this giant seashore. And it says crowds were gathered to him, just multitudes of crowds, crowds upon crowds, are gathered on the, on the shore. And Jesus is in a boat, and he's seated in the boat, and he's out a little bit away from the shore, and he begins teaching the crowds. The difference is this time, he's teaching them in parables. And during this day, he gives a lot of parables, one right after another. 
Now, he explained when the disciples asked, why are you talking to the crowds in parables? Something has, has changed, why? And we went over that before. The purpose of parables, first off, is to conceal the meaning from those who are hard-hearted. That's the first purpose of parables, to hide the truth from those who don't want the truth. They love the benefits of Jesus. They love the healings. They love the free food. They love the excitement, but they're not too interested in the king of the kingdom of heaven. The second purpose of parables is to reveal meaning, to reveal meaning to those who were his disciples, who had been born again and were following him. They're saved. And he told them that he was going to give them uh, more knowledge. He says, look, I'm gonna reveal things as it have been prophesied that have been hidden since the foundation of the world and you get to be the first to hear it, but they will not understand it. So Jesus gives all these parables in one day in Matthew 13. And the main focus is this new form that the kingdom of heaven was gonna take because of the rejection of the people and the religious leaders. So now the kingdom of heaven is gonna take a new form. So, so far, here's what we've covered. In the first parable, the parable of the sower, what we see is we see different heart responses to the message of the kingdom. So we see that uh, not all are going to receive this message. Some seemingly are headed towards receiving it, but then depart and walk away. And this was kind of a shock to the disciples. But what we also learned is that one who did receive the message who was connected with Christ would absolutely bear fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100, but if you are connected in Christ, you will bear fruit. It's a sign of a believer. Jesus goes on and he talks about what the disciples called the parable of the tares. He talks about wheat and tares. We discussed that last week. The purpose of that parable was to explain that unbelievers and believers we're gonna coexist in the world until the final judgment. And that blew the mind of the disciples. Christ's kingdom was gonna come, but evil was gonna remain. How is that possible? Why is that happening? You think they would maybe secretly think what kind of kingdom would allow evil to exist all around it? What kind of, a, is that safe? Is that wise? Is that smart? What kind of a king would allow that? And we saw the answer last week. It was a king who was patiently wanting and waiting for sinners to come to him. That was the purpose. That's the reason evil exists in the world today. So the first two parables, Jesus explained to his disciples, and then we have the explanation here in scripture. Now, Jesus explained all the parables to the disciples, it says in scripture, but we only have those two. So now we're moving on to the third and fourth parables tonight. We're gonna discuss the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. But Jesus is gonna give no explanation as to what these mean. So we're gonna use the principles from the first two parables. We're gonna look for one 
main point. That's the purpose of a parable. Now try to psychoanalyze every detail of the parable and, and how it relates to things, but look at the main purpose. He made it simple for his disciples and we know it has to do with the kingdom of heaven. So let's read Matthew 13, 31 through 32. I'll read that for you. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it is grown, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, or leaven, that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through. Those are the two parables we'll discuss tonight. They're very short. Uh, there's, there's simple points, and here's the two points we're gonna look at. The kingdom of heaven would, number one, start small. Second point is the kingdom of heaven would grow large. Seems simple, so let's start with uh, the first point, the kingdom of heaven would start small. This sounds really basic to us. It seems like everything starts small. So what's the big deal, right? You think of any business, any startup, you know, you, you think of, you know, how HP got started. You think of how Apple Computer got started and it's, you know, stories of friends meeting in a garage and now it's this huge company. And so what is so significant about God saying, kingdom of heaven is gonna start small and it's gonna grow large? Why did he need to tell the disciples that and then reinforce it with a second parable on that point. Well, the reason was, is the disciples thought the opposite. They had uh, studied the Old Testament. They had been preparing for the Messiah to come. This was uh, the next event they were all waiting for. You know, come on, let's have this Messiah come. And uh, they're picturing this Messiah coming, Israel receiving her Messiah, and then God judging the evil and the enemies who had been uh, harassing Israel and God bringing his kingdom, getting rid of sickness and death, uh, evil be gone and just this beautiful heaven on earth. They're waiting for that. And they're going, oh, this is gonna happen. They find the Messiah, he's there. And they're going, this is incredible. We found the Messiah. We're this close to the kingdom. It's gonna come, it's gonna happen. I mean, I think about that and I go, man, if I knew that, you know, like I was talking with uh, the Messiah who's in the flesh there, I could be a little bit more patient with my neighbors or with the guy in front of me on, in the traffic, right? I mean, who, yeah, it's, it's fine, you know? The Messiah is here, who cares? It's gonna be over really, really quick. You know, seconds away from everything being made right. And they were on the inside. They were part of Jesus' close-knit friends. And so they're waiting for this tremendous kingdom that would come in glory that they were gonna have a part in. They were raised with stories like Moses. Think of when Moses arrived on scene and then uh, what happens? God gives him the power to do these signs and wonders. And he goes to Pharaoh, his people have received him. He goes to Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go. 
and then the plagues happen, and then there's, there's uh, giant, giant signs from heaven. And the people eventually end up leaving. We know the story. And God does huge miracles for them and saves them. And it's wondrous and it's powerful. And it's, there's no hiding it. There's no small. There wasn't two or three people that got out of Egypt and then 10 years later, another three or four people got out. This was huge. This was powerful. This was God and this is what God did. He did huge, powerful things. He made the world in a couple of days. Then there's a story of Elijah. Elijah, God sends a prophet now, speak to the people and the people have a problem. People are starting to worship other gods. And so Elijah comes and he has the power to do signs and wonders. And this all uh, again peaks on Mount Carmel when he challenges the, the highest prophets of Baal. And he says, we're gonna find out who the real God is and get all of Israel to come out here and see. And the God who answers from heaven, that's God. And the people said, that's a good idea. And so he's up there and what happens? All Israel is watching and watching as the prophets of Baal go first and they're doing everything imaginable to summon their God. They're cutting themselves. They're screaming. There's hundreds of them, it says. They're chanting, they're jumping up and down all day long. And Elijah just sits there and he gets, uh, you know, I don't know if it's godly or not, but he gets a little cynical and starts uh, uh, <laughs> shouting out insults at them, you know. Why isn't he answering? <laughs> Maybe he's on vacation, shout louder, surely. He's a God, come on, keep going. And he does this and they do this for like half the day. As it gets towards evening, Elijah goes, okay, my turn. We know that story, right? And what happens? He calls all Israel in close. He goes, watch, watch this. And they pour water over the altar, they douse it. And Israel watches in silence. And then Elijah offers up a simple prayer and says, oh God, would you, Lord, just answer from heaven and show us today that you are the God of Israel, that I am your prophet, and that you are drawing the hearts of the people back to you. And as he finishes that prayer, fire pours down from heaven. It consumes uh, the altar. It consumes the sacrifice on the altar. It consumes the rocks and all the water that had run off. It's all gone. And the people kind of are shocked and they shout out the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Now that's powerful. These are stories they're looking to going, God, when are you gonna move again? When are you gonna do this again? We want to see you move. We've seen those two times. We know you're powerful, but they weren't the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, imagine how powerful and quick and instantaneous, all these things are gonna take place all at once. He's gonna free Israel, it's done. We're not gonna lose anymore. We're not gonna be cast into sin anymore. We're not gonna stumble. We're not gonna get sidetracked. We are going to be a godly people of the Lord and everything's gonna be made right. And, and we won't even remember the past. So because of the rejection, Jesus has to explain to them that he is here and his kingdom has come, but it's gonna take a different form for a while. And there's a reason for that. 
So Jesus appears on scene. He does miracles, powerful miracles. There's healing. There's everybody is healed. I mean, well beyond any prophet before him. He's healing people who never got healed in the Old Testament. People with, who had no eyes, who were blind, were getting healed. That never happened. That was reserved only for the Messiah. There are crowds of people following him, as you might imagine. This attracts a lot of attention. Most importantly, he was teaching the people. The word of God who had become flesh, who is the living word of God, was speaking his own words to the people. That is a service I wish I could have attended. Imagine that, sitting there with him, hearing him teach it with his inflections and his tones, emphasizing everything that needed to be emphasized. He's God, it's his heart. He's speaking his own words. He has authority in his preaching. We see that. It's not just another teacher. It's not just a prophet. He's speaking as if he's God and he's talking to his own people. He's revealing knowledge that only God has. He's telling Nathan, I saw you under the fig tree. How did you know that? Who am I? I'm God. He knows what the Pharisees are reasoning in their hearts and addresses it. How do you know that? He's God, he's the Messiah. So surely, if there was an instantaneous turning with Moses and the whole people were led out of Egypt, and if there's an instantaneous turning with Elijah and the people ran down and killed the prophets of Baal and said, we are for the Lord this day. Surely when the Messiah himself comes, his kingdom is coming in glory and it's over. And Jesus says, no. In fact, all the multitudes that you see on the seashore in front of you, I'm gonna hide the knowledge from them because their hearts aren't with me. They're not part of my kingdom. He had offered, he had shown who he was. He had backed it up with miracles. And if they had any inch of faith in God, if they had any desire at all to come to him, they would have came. So Sodom and Gomorrah would have come. Nineveh would have come. And you are not coming to me. So the disciples are kind of in this process of shock, okay? You can call it shock and awe, but we'll just stick with shock for now. They're going, what? He's on the, there's all these crowds, this is it. Something big is gonna happen and then it's, it's over. There's all these people, he's saying, they're not even really with me. And he starts with this parable and he says this. He says, the kingdom of heaven, my kingdom, is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. He's saying, look, right now my kingdom, it's actually, it's gonna come small. Not only is it gonna come small, look at the next verse, though it's the smallest of all seeds, it's gonna come in the smallest form. It's not gonna come, like maybe they're imagining that a new Jerusalem would fall down from heaven. Instantaneous, that is gonna happen, by the way. Of course, they'd be wondering something like that. He goes, no, that's, that's not how it's gonna happen right now. Right now, it's gonna start small. See, these crowds, they're gonna leave. In fact, very probably, 
some of those crowds, we're gonna be the ones shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So smaller, what does that look like? What do you mean his kingdom is coming smaller? Well, let's look at the other uh, religious sects, if you will, that were in Jerusalem at that time, the Pharisees. Well, the Pharisees, Josephus, uh, who wrote Antiquity of the Jews, he was a Jewish historian in the first century, he said he estimated there were about 6,000 Pharisees in Jerusalem, 6,000. That's a lot of people. The Sadducees uh, uh, were, we don't have an exact number, but they were a big group as well. It's just a group kind of started by men. It was somewhat political, somewhat religious. In the Old Testament, both of those things were combined because Israel not only was a priesthood uh, type of a nation, but also was a political nation. In the new kingdom, that has changed. Uh, but there was another group called the Essenes. You might be familiar with that name. They were the ones who, it is believed, uh, kept care of the library and uh, the Old Testament texts that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Josephus said that the estimate were thousands of them. Huge numbers of people were in this Essene group. So fast forward from Matthew 13, go past Jesus' death, go past his burial and resurrection. He appears to his followers. Then he ascends into heaven. And he says, wait for the Holy Spirit. How many people are waiting? It's crowds, multitudes of people. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. That's insane. I mean, you think there's a story where Jesus is telling a story and he says the story of Lazarus and the rich man. We've talked about this before. And, and he, the rich man did not want God, did not follow God, did not repent, ends up in a place of suffering. And, and he's calling out to Lazarus who did come to the Lord. And they can see each other. This is Lazarus, Lazarus, come over here. He talks to Abraham first. Abraham, send Lazarus over here, bring me some water. He says, we can't, it's done. And he says, well then send me back. Let me go back and tell my family. Now he's an evangelist. He says, they've got the Old Testament. Let them listen to that. We've talked about this, right? And he says, no, 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 no. That's not enough. God's word, that's it. That's all they have to come. Oh, they're not gonna come because I didn't come for that. I wasn't interested in that. But if they see someone who rose from the dead, they'll believe. Abraham says, I'll, I tell you the truth. If they won't listen to the law and the prophets, if they won't listen to God's word, they won't believe even if someone has risen from the dead. And that is exactly what happened. When Jesus rose from the dead, there were very few. There was uh, a group of 500 in Galilee that recorded, uh, gathered. First Corinthians 15 gives that description. 500 people uh, saw Jesus at one time. That was the group. After he rose from the dead and then he went up to heaven. There was 120 in Jerusalem in the upper room waiting. That was the birthplace of Christianity. That was the numbers. There were more Pharisees and more Sadducees individually. There were more Essenes than there were Christians after Christ had risen from the dead. That is a small seed. 
that is a small beginning. It actually got smaller than the huge crowds that were following Jesus. But it was the beginning of his kingdom. Now, Jesus likens his kingdom to a mustard seed. And mustard seeds are very, very uh, small. And in Judea, in Jesus' day, the mustard seed was the smallest seed that was planted in the fields by farmers. Smallest seed. Uh, Today, historians believe it was the black mustard seed. It's a very small seed. I actually have some here. Afterwards, we can pass around. Very small seed. Let's show a picture of that. It's one millimeter big on average. The black mustard seed. That small. And you just look at, you just picture now, picture Judea. Jerusalem, the surrounding regions. And picture 120, maybe 500 more in Galilee. Picture like 650 people, followers of Christ. Amongst the multitudes in Jerusalem. Amongst the multitudes in the world. And this was the beginning. This was gonna be the beginning. Now that term, uh, as small as a mustard seed, uh, Jesus didn't coin the phrase. There were rabbi teachers back then who would use that as well. It's a great way of describing something small. So kind of like today in the vernacular, we would say it's like a drop in the ocean, you know, meaning it makes no difference. It's really small. Uh, they would say, you know, like, well, like, you know, like mustard seed, like size of a mustard seed, as small as a mustard seed. It was a term that was based on reality. It was very, very small. And there has been some confusion. Uh, some people have been confused by this and they're thinking that what Jesus is saying is that the mustard seed is the smallest seed on earth. Now we know that's not correct. Uh, there's a couple other plants. I am by no means a botanist in any terms, uh, but the orchid has smaller seeds, you know, begonias, petunias, all those beautiful flowers, they have some smaller seeds. And so uh, there's atheists who will say, haha, we caught Jesus. He didn't know the smallest seed. Petunias are way smaller than a mustard seed. Orchids are way smaller than a mustard seed. And so for the one verse, or the, maybe they read five verses in the scriptures so they can attack Jesus, right? They read that and go, ha ha, Jesus said it's the smallest of all seeds. We're done. He can't be God. God would have known what kind of seeds he created. Okay. So how do we explain this? It's in scripture. It's really simple, guys. You have to look at context. Someone tells you this, just open up the Bible and read it to them. Here's the context. What Jesus explained was this, a mustard seed that the man took and sowed in his field. And that was the smallest of all seeds. You see, it was the smallest seed a farmer planted in his field for crops. He wasn't planting petunias for whatever reason, all right, we can do that now for whatever reason and for peace and all these things that happen, but back then they had to eat and, so, and they had to survive. So they were planting in the fields things that would produce anything. And even as far as I know to this day, through the 80s, I knew this was correct, the mustard seed is the smallest crop bearing seed in the East petunias, all those other flowers, you can't eat them. You shouldn't eat them. So, um, so uh, yes. Uh, here's another interesting fact. 
you say, okay, well, he's giving this analogy, who plants mustard, right? You know, they really do that back then. They're planting condiments in the fields, <laughs> right? Thinking about that, everybody's mind, my mind, goes right to a baseball game, you know, and you're thinking, smelling mustard, you know, like, yeah, was this going on a lot? Was this like grapes? Well, uh, interestingly enough, we do have historical documents that confirm that in the first century, uh, first century Jews received instructions about the planting of mustards in their, mustard in their field. And so this is how we know this, really interesting. So in the Jewish Mishnah, which is the oral traditions, after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD uh, and the Jews spread out because uh, they were conquered and they resettled, uh, there were some Jewish rabbis and scholars who got together and said, we need to record our oral traditions they expounded and commented on the Old Testament scriptures. And so they got together in the first and second centuries and they came up with the Mishnah and they had all kinds of details. I mean, you wanna read a lot of details. I mean, you think Leviticus is hard? They explain Leviticus in detail as if it wasn't detailed enough, right? Um, and so yes, actually in the Mishnah, uh, in one of the books, chapter two, verses eight and nine, it talks about, okay, explaining the Levitical law that you can't sow two types of seed in a field. What does that mean? And they said, well, let's say, for example, you have mustard that you're sowing in the field. They say mustard and saffron. And they explain where you can sow it, how you can sow it. They go into this detail. So obviously they were doing that. You wouldn't use an example of something arbitrary Right? So they say that again uh, in chapter three of one of the Mishnah books. Uh, they talk about uh, if you wanted to try to plant it, you could plant it near the garden herbs, but it was planted in the field. And they explain that, uh, that there's a difference between a seed, seed goes in the fields, and an herb or vegetable goes in the garden. It's very specific. If you want some nighttime reading, go look it up in the Mishnah. You will find it there. Uh, so yeah, the answer to this is really simple. Uh, just for a side note, for your own knowledge, uh, he has prefaced this by saying all the seeds that are, uh, the farmer goes out to sow in the field, and it, it, it's the smallest of all the seeds. Mark clarifies it and says, look, the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds that fall on the soil, spreading them. That's how they spread them in farming. And that fact is very true. So the purpose of the parable though, it does serve well, just talking about how small the kingdom of heaven will start off. Let's go to point number two. Now that we've seen the kingdom will start small, we're gonna see that it's going to grow large, that it is gonna happen, just not the time and not the way they thought it would happen. Let's look at verse 32, second part of verse 32. Yet when it grows, that mustard seed, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And so uh, now we're talking about explosive growth, huge growth. That little tiny seed that you saw in that picture is gonna grow to be this, this huge, huge thing. Um, and the word there, it says it's gonna be the tallest of garden plants, uh, is a Greek word for herbs and vegetables. That's what it means. It's going to be taller than any herb, plant, taller than any vegetable, anything. It's going to be tall. I actually have some pictures. Let's look at the pictures of what the black mustard seed looks like as it grows. It has more of a bushy 
uh, context. We can flip uh, through those. Birds do perch in their branches, just in the ones we see today. They can get up to 12 or 15 feet tall. That guy's got a decent size one. That's what, nine feet maybe? Grown alongside the road, and then we have another one, taller one. Uh, and I wouldn't recommend pulling them out, by the way. I think that's illegal. Uh, but it's important to see here that, yes, this, if this is the plant that's being referred to, is definitely the smallest seed. Uh, they grow, but they're by no means a cedar tree. He's not talking about a cedar tree, okay? Uh, but they can grow big and big enough for birds to, by all means, land in them and find shelter. But the tie-in in this is with Old Testament prophecy. And so uh, when it talks about the birds of the air, this getting so big, so huge, bigger than everything else around it, that it can support birds, that they look to it for shelter. They're coming and, and, uh, and finding shelter in this. This is um, tied into three different explanations given in the Old Testament. If you remember in Ezekiel 17, verse 22 through 24, I'll read that to you. Ezekiel gives us prophecy. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from the topmost shoot and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make low and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. In the context in Ezekiel, it's being, this is actually a messianic prophecy. Whenever we, we get that word, the branch, being broke, that's talking about the branch of David, that's talking about the Messiah himself. And the Lord's saying, I'm gonna take this branch, I'm gonna plant him there, and he's gonna grow, and his kingdom's gonna grow, and it's gonna be huge and big. And look at how it views the birds. It says, birds of every kind will nest in it. Do you know what that means? That means that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are gonna come in and find shelter. That's us. That's the prophecy. And so when we see that here in the parable, uh, really the main point emphasizing this growth and that it's from God and that birds are finding shelter is just showing how strong this kingdom is. That it's not gonna be some shallow thing. It's not gonna stay 120 people large. It is going to grow bigger than that. Also in Ezekiel 31, six, we see another description and in Daniel 4.21, when the king Nebuchadnezzar has the dream, we see uh, Daniel interpret that. And it's the same type of meaning that, look, because of your such, you're such a big kingdom, the birds are coming in, you're the tree, your kingdom's the tree, and they're finding shelter there. So this is the main point of the parable. Every parable has a shocking wow point. And this is it. Usually those mustard seeds, they grow big, they grow tall. But when you start talking about, you know, birds landing in them and they're a tree, and now we're stepping into God-type growth. 
Same type of thing we saw in the parable of the sower. 30, 60, 100 fold, that's crazy. That can't happen. That like maybe wants somewhere, you know? I mean, that just doesn't happen. 100, the usual was like seven and a half, less than 10 fold return on the seed. But because of God, he has a great return. And that's the whole point of this parable. Yes, it's gonna start small. Absolutely, prepare yourself for it. It's gonna happen. But it's gonna grow large. It's gonna grow swift. And other peoples are gonna come in and find shelter there and be a part of this kingdom. And it's going to support them. The kingdom is gonna mature. Most importantly though, the growth is going to be from God. In Acts 2.47, it says this. We'll put it up on the screen for you. It says, after the Holy Spirit had fallen and the disciples had power to witness and share the gospel, they go out and there's 3,000 saved the first day. And they're just, just loving it, jumping up and down. They go out and in uh, Acts chapter three, 2,000 people are saved. So there's 5,000 of them and it just continues. And it, it says in Acts chapter two, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We gotta remember, it's the Lord who's causing the growth. It's the Lord that's causing the growth. Why were the people on the shore you know, not there. We would probably receive them today and go, oh yes, we have an instant giant church. This is so awesome. Why would you ever wanna send them away? Let's not offend them. Let's do whatever we can to keep them. And Jesus says, they're not even part of my kingdom. They don't even want me. This isn't about numbers. This is about godly growth. Godly growth happens when a person receives Christ. And it's that simple. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. Paul says, look, I planted the seed. I shared the gospel with you. Apollos, another servant of the Lord, he watered it. He trained you and taught you the scriptures, but God has been making it grow. Do you realize tonight that God is the one that's causing your growth if you're in him? Yeah, you're going to church, you're reading your Bible, you're praying, God is the one who is growing you. We have some amazing preachers today that preach some powerful messages, but God is the one who is growing you. He is the king, it's his kingdom, and he causes the growth. And if you're trying to do it on your own, you will not be able to match godly growth. It just never works that way. You might look good for a while, you might get some growth, you will not get the godly growth that the gospel promises. So for our last parable, it's the same two points. Now the parable of, the, parable of, uh, the mustard seed was in Mark and Luke as well. You can see those there, same parable. Parable of 11 is only in Matthew, parable of the yeast. And he's just reinforcing this point. It's really short, it's one verse and it's this. Verse 33, he told them another parable. 
The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. That's a parable, it's a whole thing. He doesn't give an explanation. And we don't see a record of the disciples even asking for an explanation. It seemed pretty simple and we get it. Same thing, uh, about 60, 50 or 60 pounds is what they estimate of flour. That's a lot of flour. Now, not only am I not a botanist, I'm also not a baker. So uh, 50 pounds of flour, I mean, I brought one pound sacks in. I've seen five pound sacks, but 50 pounds of flour, that's a lot. That's another wow factor. And he's saying, look, just a little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast will work its way through the whole thing. One commentator even mentioned, uh, you know, another aspect of this point is that, uh, you know, once the, the process of the yeast begins doing its job, it will grow and it's not gonna stop. That's what we see going on in our lives. The parable of the mustard seed is talking about the kingdom of heaven. The parable of the yeast is uh, continuing talking about the kingdom of heaven, but also infers a little bit inwardly what goes on in the life of a believer. God gets in there and starts growing you from the inside. Just a little tiny bit. You let him in, you receive him. I'm telling you, the day you're saved, he starts working in your life. So the main point in both of these is, is just the simple message of this. God's kingdom is gonna start small. He's encouraging his disciples, but it will end large. And ultimately it's gonna come in glory. Now I do wanna mention that a few commentators have, uh, have offered another second point in terms of the birds and the leaven. And so they point out that earlier in the parable of the sower, the birds were the bad guys. That was the devil, right? So they say, well, maybe it's also kind of saying that along with this growth, some false teachers are gonna come in and maybe kind of hitch alongside. Um, that's possible. We certainly do see that in church history. We see that today, that people attach themselves to Christendom and they, they uh, you know, kind of say, oh yeah, I'm, count me in. You know, you look up today and it says, uh, Christianity is the number one world religion. 2.1 billion people claim to be a follower of Christ in one form or another. It's the number one religion on earth. However, when you start breaking it down, you find out that some people don't believe the gospel in that. Uh, many don't preach being born again. And so the reality is much less, but the point is still there that yes, that could be an aspect. Um, but the key that I look to here and, and other commentators agree is just, he starts off and says, this is another parable, okay? He switched terms and meanings between the first parable of the sower and the second parable of the tear. There is farmers in all three so far, sowing seeds in all three so far. But he said, look, it's switched in the first two. We went from the seed being the word of God in the beginning and then the seed in the parable of the tares being sons of the kingdom. And so we have to be careful by, uh, by just taking uh, one example of a parable, of something described in a parable and applying it to everything else Jesus says. We gotta take the main point of the parable. Uh, dealing with the leaven or, uh, or yeast, uh, traditionally in the Old Testament, you know, um, leaven was looked at as, as almost similar to sin. So God told them to get rid of their leaven. 
uh, during Passover and things like that, but it's not always bad. And so there, uh, there is, I believe, a type of a peace offering that you brought. And he said, bring me leaven cakes uh, and present those before the altar. And, and really the key point, as we did discuss, is just the fact that it causes the growth. A little thing causes huge growth. And again, in scripture, we gotta remember that just because a symbol is used, like a lion, for example, doesn't always mean it's bad, doesn't always mean it's good. You gotta look at the context. So God, Jesus specifically, is described as a lion. Okay, the lion of Judah. The devil is described as a lion. <laughs> a roaring lion, right? Okay, look at the context. That's how you know what the symbol means. And overall, be assured of this one point. God causes the growth in your life and in mine. He's the one that does it. His kingdom is going to grow. And I wonder if this is one of the things that inspired the apostle Paul to get on those ships and to go preach the gospel. Because he knew once this starts, it just can't stop. And he's willing to give his life for that. The final closing verses are this. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. How joyful it was for those things to be revealed to those disciples on that day and to us today. How sad it was for those who missed the opportunity to understand that. So don't let that be you tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we are just amazed at the growth that we can see as believers in our life. If we can just step back and look, we know it's not from us, it's from you. We know, God, that you're working in us. You're moving. The leaven is doing what it's supposed to do. It's your word that's moving inside of us. Your kingdom is being built around the world as we speak right now. Men and women have dedicated their lives to preach this word and to spread this message because they know your kingdom is going to grow. Lord, encourage us today. Lord, your kingdom is still growing. There's times when we feel small, we think it's small. We wish that you would come, remind us of the truths we're learning about your kingdom. That the reason why this is continuing this way is because of your great loving kindness and patience towards sinners. And we were one of them. Give us grace and patience to deal with all, Lord. Help us to have the same heart for others that you do. And Lord, we just pray that we would continue to bring your kingdom through the preaching of your word, through the expectation of your return. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org. 